When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring International Tennis Hall of Famer, former world number one Mats Vlander, and Texas Longhorn all-time great, two-time All-American Johnny Levine. Your host of KickServeRadio.com is Andy Zoden. So, take it away, AZ. And take it away. I will welcome everybody back to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Of course, we are joined by the legend, the birthday boy, Mats Vlander, who turned 59 this week. Johnny Levine is with us, and we are together for the first time in a good while. Uh, Mats, I want to start out by thanking you for coming down to Colorado and doing the Colorado Swing like you do in August I speak on behalf of Karen Schott, who is the director of tennis at the Broadmoor and her team. I speak on behalf of Alex Davidoff and his team, which includes Sarah Zoden at Glenmore Country Club. I speak on behalf of Mike Phillips and his team at the Denver Tennis Park. And of course, I speak on behalf of myself and my team at Columbine Country Club. You came down, you did your Bruce Springsteen thing. You left with no voice and two broken arms. But besides that, I think it went well. You enjoyed the time down here. I enjoyed it, and it sounds like you've organized a, a green fee uh, place on all these golf courses, Andy, with thanking <laughs> all of them. Yeah, I mean, it was just a great trip, a lot of good golf and good tennis, and um, sometimes the body uh, can't take what the mind wants it to do, but I'd rather have it that way than the other way. That's why I announced that you are 59, so that if anyone would know it, you would, because sometimes you act like you're a 20-year-old still. Guys, let's start with what we witnessed, because, Matt, when you got into the car and started heading back to Sun Valley, I got in the car and headed to Lakewood, Colorado, which was only about 15 minutes away after everything ended at Columbine Country Club, which was unbelievable. Sat down on the couch and noticed that Carlos Alcaraz was up a set on Novak Djokovic, and it would end up being, in my opinion, Johnny, every bit the final that we saw from those two at Wimbledon. And I start with you and we'll let Matt's hear what we have to say about it first, because he was in the car on the way to Sun Valley. You and I actually saw this thing, your thoughts on whether or not this is maybe the best masters 1000 final we've ever seen. Here's Johnny. No question. I, I mean, it, it definitely in my book has to be the best masters 1000 final. And it might be one of I know this is going out way out there, but I, I think it's one of the best matches that I've ever seen, period. And um, the efforts by both these guys, the, the, the ups and the downs and the, the, the way these guys fought at different points in that match and the, the match point that, uh, that Djokovic had. I mean, look, he had a lot of opportunities there and he just could not pull it out. And then he just hung on. But the match point where... Alcaraz hit that that forehand pass might have been you know one of the greatest match points saved in the history of tennis. 
all I could think about was what a treat it was for those Cincy fans to see a match like that, the number one and number two player in the world, gutting it out like as if it was a Grand Slam final. And um, that was really cool. So those are my thoughts on that match. Matt, you won that thing four times. And what is it about that tournament that is able to bring out what we saw from those two warriors? What's what's the atmosphere like? Johnny made mention of the weather. It was breezy, but it was hot and it was humid. And it seemed like at different moments in this match, uh, these players were being affected by those by those variables. Talk about when you were on that court and what you were feeling. Yes, yeah, so obviously to me as a Swedish person, we we looked at Cincinnati as this is real America. This is uh, this is where uh, the people are are very American. Um, it's obviously uh, I'm guessing we call the Midwest, right? In your guys' terms, uh, it's hot, it's humid, uh, it has thunderstorms because of that. It's there's wind, and it was very very uh, difficult to play in Cincinnati. I think. And I say that only because I won it four times. And I think when conditions are tough, uh, it's the great leveler, uh, in a tennis matches when, uh, when the conditions are perfect, you can get beaten. So I worked that out and it's a huge tournament if you win it. And if you don't, it's not a huge deal. Before we go to you, Johnny Matz, I want to ask you this because of the timing of that tournament on the schedule. Is it really the perfect situation for Cincinnati tennis fans? Because they realize that you can go out there and leave it all out on the court the way Alcaraz and Djokovic did and go three hours and 45 minutes and know that you've got a full week now to rest up before the start of the U.S. Open, that you can go out there and play this thing knowing that, okay, I'm going to just go for broke here and I'm going to leave it all on the court and then I can rest, and that's kind of helpful in getting you matched tough for the U.S. Open, but also allowing you time to get your body right as well. I think that Cincinnati is more important for the players than the Canadian Open. Uh, in that sense, I think uh, winning any of them is obviously great, but uh, the winner of the Canadian Open very rarely sort of takes it and runs with it. I think it's only been done twice that the, the, the player has won both those tournaments. And I think they're Djokovic and Nadal, to be honest. But uh, I think Cincinnati, it's one of those tournaments where you're you're going full out, but you're very relaxed in a way. It's it it's it means more to have fun, and it means more to suffer through the the environment and the circumstances than than losing a tennis match or gaining a few ranking points. And I think that's what you see with Novak. Uh, I mean, it's so interesting to see that Novak has finally found a player that he uh, is willing to go the distance with risking losing another close one to the number one player in the world. And um, I think that that's very, uh, it's impressive by Novak, but it tells me that Carlos Alcaraz is everybody's favorite player to play against because it's fun and because the shot making skills are incredible, that points are unbelievable. And I think players just relax even the great Novak Djokovic, because he isn't a threat to Novak, let's face it. Yeah, to win the US Open, maybe, but number one in the world, who cares? Uh, Novak is so far ahead. So I think it's just a challenge, and it comes at the perfect time when Rafa and Roger are gone. As a result of everything that Matt's just said about those two, Johnny, does it sort of change this from not necessarily being a rivalry, but to being an intriguing matchup? that we will get an opportunity to enjoy for a couple of years 
during the final couple of years, uh, presumably, of Djokovic's career and the first couple of years of superstardom for Alcaraz. They're very friendly. There's a lot of mutual respect. And that's not really necessarily what rivalries are made of. So is it is it something different than a rivalry, but still great for our sport? Well, when you think of uh, Djokovic being part of such historic rivalries with Nadal and Federer and even Andy Murray. I mean, those guys had incredible battles and they, you know, they were juniors together, but I think this is a new rivalry. And I think okay. it's at the level, obviously as the Nadal and the Federer's and he might not play those guys as, as many times, but how great is this for tennis and Djokovic isn't going anywhere. So, I mean, for the next couple of years, if, if Djokovic can maintain his, his fitness and his health, which it appears to be that he can, this might be the new great rivalry that uh, is going to be so much fun to watch. Matt, as far as the U.S. Open is concerned and sort of your, your, your mainstream casual tennis fans, did Djokovic need this win in Cincinnati for the sake of creating sort of this this Frazier Ali thing where, okay, Alcaraz got him at Wimbledon and then here we go in Cincinnati and then Djokovic got him. Of course, Djokovic got him at Roland Garros and maybe you put an asterisk next to that one because of the cramping and the fitness and that type of thing. But the, the, the two matches that are going to be remembered most going into New York are going to be that Wimbledon final and that Cincinnati final and one, one, one and one, one, the other. And now this could be sort of that thriller in Manila type of atmosphere. Now that they, is that what New York's got to, to, to look forward to? You know, they have that to look forward to, but I think that you should, you cannot leave out the French Open match because okay. at the end of the Cincinnati match, he was hitting two-handed forehands, call us right. Alcaraz. So, Novak has figured something out that we don't know, which is this kid is not going to hang with me for seven hours. He might hang for seven. I'm going to take him to seven. I'm going to take him to six. I'm going to take him to five. I'm going to take him as far as I can hang with him myself. And Novak knows that. And I think for him, it was hugely important to not win this match necessarily, but to take it to the bitter end and have Alcaraz suffer because Carlos got to go into New York now and think, okay, holy smokes, what do I need to do to beat this guy? I know he won Wimbledon, but, uh, but he cramped in the other two. So I think, again, it's there's a quick turnaround for us to figure that problem out. Was it nerves in Cincinnati? No, I can't imagine, just like we talked about in Paris. So something's going on, uh, and it's, it was probably Novak that's taken him deeper than anyone has ever taken him, because most players sort of can't get to the fourth shot that Alcaraz hits, but Djokovic can get to most of them. Well, I mean, what's it going to be like if they both get to the finals of the Open? I mean, after that Cincy finals. It's going to be insane. So, Johnny, I know you're a huge Novak fan. You always have been. And, I mean, it's it's very, I think, uh, it makes you realize that it's very dangerous when you start jumping on bandwagons of, of who's doing what right and who's doing what wrong. Uh, and, and everybody doesn't blossom at the same time in their life. And Novak is clearly, his time, to me, has clearly come now. Like, Roger is gone, Rafa is gone. And Novak is not, he's still there. This is when his popularity is going to go through the roof because we get to see the most exciting tennis player in, in, I mean, maybe ever in Carlos Alcaraz. Why? Because of Novak Djokovic. And I think this, this is where he's going to feel the love. He felt it in Cincinnati. Like they were going crazy for Novak, of course, for Carlos Alcaraz. But so I, I think it's, uh, um, his work towards, being a better person and a better uh, um, competitor uh, and a more professional 
athlete and ambassador and uh, a global person is just incredible the rise that he's going at from where he started out coming from Serbia at 18, 19 to where he is now. Um, he really is taking uh, taking himself and his mission very, very much further than just our sport. Andy Roddick made a great point before we go, you guys, about how, you know, Roddick's like, gosh, when I was playing this guy, he, you know, I figured if I could get to the two hour mark, he might retire. Right. And now no one is staying out on the court yeah. longer than that guy. All right. Novak's time may have come, but there is a great American player that we'll talk about when we come back for the break, whose time may have come and gone in his last event is going to be the U.S. Open. We'll talk about him when we come back. You're listening to KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Don't go away, everybody. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everybody, AZ here, and I am joined now by Bobby Blair. Bobby, you need no introduction. People know you you, since your days at Arkansas, playing the tour, and you've just been around tennis for decades, and now you've got a travel company, Bobby Blair Tennis Adventures. It sounds really cool. You're going to the U.S. Open and other places. Tell me a little more about it. Well, you know, we're all in our 50s these days, and I've got so many friends that have kind of come back to tennis in a lot of ways. You know, they went, they got married, they had a bunch of kids. So I thought that, you know, I'd like to spend the next 20 years of my last fourth quarter of life, pretty much, um, taking people around the world to the greatest tournaments, to some amazing destinations. You know, heck, let's go to Switzerland, to the Swiss Alps, play on some red clay, stay in a chalet, drink some great red wine, or, you know, like what we're doing in a couple of weeks, we're going to the U.S. Open. We're staying at the Hard Rock Hotel in Times Square. We've got VIP transportation service to and from the National Tennis Center to the hotel. We got incredible Arthur Ashe Stadium tickets Saturday, Sunday, and Monday on Labor Day. I think it's just fantastic time to spend with friends. Bobby, for people that would like to find out more and get involved and certainly maybe even get on board for this U.S. Open trip, where do they go? BobbyBlairTennisAdventures.com. I have an Eventbrite page there. It explains everything, all the value. There's couples packages. There's singles packages. And, uh, you know, we're getting ready to announce also at the U.S. Open, we're doing a Las Vegas destination getaway. I've had so many friends that want to come out and play tennis and pickleball and maybe a round of golf. The Sterling Club, where I am, is a preeminent five-star location, one block off the Vegas Strip. So a Katy Perry concert, a five-star dinner, and then I think we're planning Australia for the Australian Open, and then we'll move our way into Europe uh, next summer. Bobby, hook me up with Katy Perry for some mixed doubles, and I'm in. He's Bobby Blair. The website is bobbyblairtennisadventures.com. I assure you, you go on a trip with this guy, you won't be disappointed. Check it out today. Bobby Blair Tennis Adventures. Bobby, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Andy. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. 
Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Matt Vlander, Johnny Levine, I'm Andy Zoden. We were talking about that Cincinnati final and just kind of ran out of superlatives, so we had to go to break. And what we're going to talk about now is a guy who's just announced after 17 years on the Pro Tour, after a great college career at the University of Georgia, that the U.S. Open is going to be his last event. And of course, I speak of none other than Big John Isner. And Matt, I will ask you, when it's all said and done, and you've got to have John Isner dot, 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 one sentence to sort of sum up his legacy, what is it? Oh, John Isner, the ice man, for sure. I mean, he... He, for, for I called him John the Clutch Isner at some point, and he and he sort of thanked me at at the tournament in Newport. I mean, he's so clutch because he gets to a tiebreaker way, 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 way more than any player has ever gotten the tiebreakers, and that's how he wins matches is by not dropping a service game. It's not. It's by not dropping points on his serve in tiebreakers, and th- that is just the margins are so small when you have a game like that. And uh, I think that John Isner was such a nice guy, such a gentleman, is such a gentleman, uh, on and off the court. And then you put that serve in, and that added that attitude that maybe he didn't project as a person, but with a serve, he became a pain, pain in the butt to play against, and a, sometimes a pain in the butt to watch too. But that was the impressive part, that he just went about his business and uh, – I mean, how many big points has he not won? That's going to be very, very sad. Uh, he deserves a lot of credit for carrying American tennis uh, in in what would have been seen as maybe a pretty dry spell for American men's tennis the last 10, 15 years. Johnny, before I give you my sort of summation of what I think John's going to end up being known for, having been a great college player yourself at the University of Texas and having had the career you did and watching John do the same, uh, at the University of Georgia, do you think that he has been one of the right now? It's Chris Eubanks that's kind of the the poster child for it's okay to play college tennis and then go pro. But was Isner really a guy that helped further the cause of great collegiate tennis for the sake of having gone and done what he did at Georgia and then going into the pros and being so successful? Yeah, absolutely, no question about it. I mean, you're you're looking at John Isner is one of the few guys that I can think of that played four years of college tennis. Right. I mean, he went all four years and got to top 10 in the world, won, won many ATP titles. Um, I think what stands out about Isner, you know, his game with obviously the serve, maybe the greatest serve in the history of tennis. Um, and and what, what happens when you have a serve like that and you play like John Isner um, it's it's not always the most enjoyable to watch. I mean, because the points are very, very short and and it's just not the kind of tennis that you would see, for example, that we saw in the Cincy final. No. Um, but you got to give John Isner credit for a 17-year career on a on basically a seven-foot body. Um, that that takes a toll, and and he really handled his career without major injuries. And you've got to give him a ton of credit for that. But what stands out to me about John Isner, which you guys mentioned, just a class act all around, never any issue with anyone uh, on the court, just just a, a gentleman. And I think he's a, a locker room favorite, too. I think everyone loves John Isner. So it'll be it's it's a great moment at the U.S. Open to see him that that be his last tournament. I think. And I agree with everything that you guys just said, but if I'm just going to add a little something to it, 
I think what his legacy is, is the fifth set tiebreak at Wimbledon. Because if you think about it, he played the longest match of all time, 70-68 in the fifth over Nicholas Mahu. But then eight years later, I believe he goes 26-24 in the fifth in the semis against Kevin Anderson. And at that point, they said enough's enough. And then it went to the tiebreak at 12-all, which then we remember the great 12-all tiebreak with uh, with Federer and, and, and Djokovic, which were, you know, Roger squandered a couple of match points in that one. And that was a 13-12 uh, fifth set. But but ultimately, just these long five setters at Wimbledon, I think when you don't win a major and you've got, got a glom on to sort of this one thing, I think it's going to be those two matches that then precipitated Wimbledon. You know, they talked about basketball changing its rules because of Wilt Chamberlain. Wimbledon changed its rules because of John Isner. And I think that's that's an enormous thing to be to be known for. Um, and I think that he probably takes a lot of great pride in it. And you would know better than either of us, Matt. But I got to believe he and Nicholas Mahu share a fairly special bond as a result of that match. I agree with you. I think John Easton, I think that second match against Kevin Anderson was the, was the uh, last straw because, because of it, Djokovic Nadal couldn't finish. They had to play the next day. Um, the outcome could have been different. Um, at least that's what Rafa thought. And then that way, Kevin Anderson could have beaten Rafa on and on. So I think, I think they, uh, they uh, changed it mainly because of what John Isner was involved in. Yes. Let's go back to Cincinnati, you guys, because we talked all about that men's final. But let's not forget, Coco Goff won the women's title. And Johnny, she beat Iga Svantec along the way, which even legitimizes that more. Uh, Karolina Mukova in the final, who is a tough customer, particularly this year. The tennis that she is playing is incredibly impressive. And for Goff to be able to go through those two who played each other in an amazing French Open final, uh, I'll remind folks, and then Goff to come out on the right side of that. How big is that for her going into this U.S. Open with that blast of confidence? Yes, Andy, big-time confidence booster, winning those two titles and beating the caliber of players that she did. She's had the talent. People have thought, you know, why hasn't she done better? Well, you know, it's a, it's a long journey, and she was very young when she started out, and it takes time, and it takes maturity. And she's found her her rhythm right now to where she knows she can beat the top players. She's got a huge game, huge serve. And uh, we've talked about it before, but she's getting a lot of help from Brad Gilbert right now, who I think has done wonders with her. And um, so, I mean, she's ready to break the top five and 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 definitely, um, you know, a favor to win a slam in this in this next, uh, you know, U.S. Open and 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 the three slams following that. I mean, she's going to be a favorite. Talk about Brad Gilbert and Coco Goff, Matt, because Andy Roddick talked about it on on TC Live, and you know he he really gave some incredibly insightful perspective on you know, having been there with Brad Gilbert, and you saw Brad's you know career as a player come and go, his career as a coach come and go. What do you see as the positives with with he and Coco? He picks players 
because he knows they're talented enough to get to a certain point because he's not going to be pleased with her just winning uh, the, the Washington, Cincinnati or the U.S. Open. He'll be pleased when she knows how to play tennis. Uh, and and uh, day in, day out, different surfaces, different opponents. When she knows how to uh, uh, to play your opponent every single time uh, and, and then use your strengths, which are phys- physical, the backhand, of course. And I think he's figured out that, that she needs to play the big points with her strength, which is movement, not missing, and lockdown, which is what Novak does, and then she needs, she needs to play the, the smaller points, the 15-40, the 30-love. That's when she needs to scare them with sort of the Serena Williams style of tennis because those points are irrelevant anyway. And I think Brad Gilbert is just a perfect guy. If you can take Andre Agassi from what he was to what he became, uh, then you're an absolute genius as a coach because Agassi was not a tennis player when he was young. He, he hit the ball and then he learned how to play tennis. And I think Brad had a lot to do with that. And, uh, of course, Andre looked at the game differently, but maybe because of Brad Gilbert. So it's perfect for me. Before we go to break, I will just add that from from my seat, I see Brad as a guy who was a great player in his own right, but but actually has a lot of Nick Bollettieri in him because Bollettieri, you make the comment, Matt, that he may see things that other coaches don't see. I think Brad sees things that these players themselves don't see. And I think he brings some some clarity to someone about their own game and about their own ability to help them see that finish line. And that's what I think makes him great is that he did it himself, but he's got a lot of Nick in him in the presentation and the way he makes these players feel confident and believe in himself. Here's an interesting, though, because I played him uh, a few times. So Brad Gilbert wasn't a great player, right? You can't say that, that the number eight player, whatever he was, was great. What Brad Gilbert was, what he was, and this is a much bigger compliment, is that he reached his absolute full potential. That didn't make him a great tennis player. It just made him a great athlete, a great competitor. And if you stack him up against Ivan Lendl, suddenly, no, he's not a great tennis player, but he got the most out of his game. And I think because he has that talent of getting the most out of his own game, he can see that in other players, how they struggle with not getting the most out of their own ability. And I think that's where, where he shines. And most probably because he didn't have great shots and because he didn't have a big serve, he had to, to gut it out and, and play dirty. And I think you cannot uh, 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 confuse a great player with someone who reached his potential, like a David Ferrer, for example. Very similar. So playing dirty, winning ugly, whatever the case may be, I'm not yeah. surprised if there's a resurgence on Amazon of book sales for Brad Gilbert after watching Coco Golf play at Cincinnati. All right, when we come back, there's still other things that we've got to get to that are in the news. We're going to break right now. You're listening to kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Final segment after this, please do not go away. Hey guys, AZ here with Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And I am joined by Diadem Business Development Manager, Doug Mouch. And Doug, let's face it, pickleball right now is all of the rage. However, it hasn't been exactly a seamless transition of bringing pickleball in with some of the the tennis clubs and one of the pain points has been the sound of pickleball and diadem has really taken the bull by the horns with regard to some new technology that you guys have out that i think 
all pickleball players, tennis players, or people that have a concern about the sound of pickleball are going to be very excited. Tell us about it. This past November, we launched the Vice Paddle, and we knew it wouldn't be conforming to USAPA rules because it has the EVA foam in it. That EVA foam causes the paddle to have a little more of a trampoline effect, but our theory was it's going to help tennis elbow or pickleball elbow, help wrist issues. It will help people that need a little more power that don't have it. But the biggest factor that we have found that's helped many country clubs and communities is the noise factor. So this EVA foam device paddle, it really does not make any noise whatsoever. Just It's a very solid noise, more of a tennis racket. So it kind of mutes that plastic wiffle ball noise to almost zero. So it gives you a little more power, in, in some cases a lot more. It's arm friendly. It's audio friendly. Where can people go online to find out more about Diadem's wide array of pickleball equipment and tennis equipment? Well, our website is diademsports.com. The paddle is the Diadem Vice. Go online, check it out. I'm Andy Zoden. Doug, thank you so much. We appreciate it, and good luck with all you guys are doing. Thank you, Andy. Really appreciate your time. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, pre-U.S. Open. You're listening to us as part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, Matt's Johnny and AZ. And guys, as we go into this U.S. Open, it's really nice to look down at the rankings and see two females in the top 10, Jessica Pagula at three, the aforementioned Coco Goff at six. On the men's side, Taylor Fritz at nine, Francis Tiafo at 10. I'm going to start on the men's side, Matt, and ask you this question. And when we do a lot of uh, sports talk radio going into the NFL playoffs, we talk a lot about who we have confidence in as a coach, who we have confidence in as a as a quarterback. I'm going to ask you, of these highly ranked American men, who do we have more confidence in? You've got Taylor Fritz at nine, Francis TFO at ten. I'm going to throw in an honorable mention because I know he, I know he's not far behind these guys, particularly with the tennis that Tommy Paul has been playing. And of those three going into the U.S. Open. Where are you most confident? Um, well, that is such a tough question because I think that the U.S. Open is made for Francis Tiafo, uh, because of I think James Blake started something back in, in when he was when he was a great player got to the semifinals, uh, and I think Francis Tiafo can do uh, uh, can can start up those same emotions in the New York crowd. Uh, so I think they take very. Uh, very personally when they watch Francis Tiafoe because he's a great guy. Um, he's uh, uh, the the dream of be- becoming a great American and making it America. All those cultural, uh, ethnical things, I think, is, is very important. I think he thinks the U.S. Open is way, way, way ahead of all the other three slams. And I think this is where we'll see him literally uh, get 
carried off the court in the stretcher. I think this, there's no question in my mind that he will not give it 100% emotionally, tactically, everything. Um, I think Taylor Fritz uh, is a safe bet to win to win the first two matches. Uh, must probably get to a fourth round. I think Tommy Paul is the same. I think Fritz and Paul, I would back Paul maybe to be a little bit more consistent. I'm, I'm concerned after Taylor Fritz lost to Mikael Emer in Wimbledon after two sets to love up. Great by him winning Atlanta. Um, but uh, uh, those three guys are, I mean, that's what's so cool. Those are the three Americans and a few, Ben Shelton, and you can throw so many in there. And then you have that other story, which is Novak and Carlos. So I think this year's Open is going to be a pilgrimage of American tennis fans, I think, that realize it's going to be a great year for Americans. And it could be one of the best years ever because of what we've seen already with Novak and Carlos. I think this year's U.S. Open with Coco and Pegula now, I think it's going to be absolutely wild. Johnny, you, you saw Francis TFO. It's hard to argue at Matt's point get to the semis last year, taking out Rafael Nadal in route, giving Carlos Alcaraz all he could handle. I mean, athlete for athlete, they matched up pretty well. Just It just seemed like it was destiny for Alcaraz last year. But of what we've seen, if we're giving it a little recency bias, whether we should or we should not, Fritz TFO, I got to tell you, man, I'm really impressed with what I've been seeing from Tommy Paul. What are your thoughts? Yeah, Tommy Paul's really playing at a high level and very confident, knows he can beat the top players. Obviously, you know, he beat Alcaraz, so he knows that anyone that he steps on the court with now he can he can beat, and that was not the case uh, a, year, uh, a year ago or so. So the Australian Open sure gave him all the confidence in the world, and, and he's, a, he's a tough player to beat. I mean, he, he, he hits very aggressively without a lot of errors. He serves well. He's mentally tough. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you got to give him maybe, you know, right after, obviously, right after Paul or uh, TFO and, and Fritz. I still, you still got to go with those guys um, to give them the edge. But TFO with his athletic ability, the way he, he engages the crowd, the U.S. Open is just made for him. I agree with Matt's. Matt's Coco and Jess. You got Coco coming off the Cincy win. You got Pagula coming off the win the week before. Both of those players beating Schwantek en route to those titles. Pagula's from Buffalo. Football season's about to start. That crowd is already pretty, pretty rabid about, about, you know, the Buffalo Bills and about tennis and about Jesse. But then Coco's going to get a ton of energy out of that crowd. Who do you think stands a better chance of making a deep run out of those two? Well, that is a very tough. I mean, I would. I'm just a little afraid that we might get uh, somewhat of a reaction from Coco Golf because obviously she's coming into a completely different situation at this year's U.S. Open compared to where she was before. I don't care that she made the finals of the French Open. That doesn't. Uh, that that doesn't do. There is an aftermath, and there was a great tournament, but she got beaten. Well, that was that was 22 when she was in the final of the French. That wasn't even exactly. Issue. But this yeah, yeah. is now like coming in as one of the favorites. At U.S. Open, that's, I mean, this is a different level of pressure. Um, I think that she's going to be able to handle that at some point in her career. Is it this year? Uh, I'm not really sure. I think that she, I mean, is she going to play doubles at the U.S. Open? Are both of them going to play doubles? I mean, she's played enough tennis. So you just, we just wonder how 
And that's going to be very telling if she's playing doubles or not, Coco Goff, and if Jesse actually wants to play doubles. Uh, I think that for uh, Coco Goff, it's very possible that this is the year when she go- she just rises into stardom, and there she is. She's gone. She's going to win major after major after major. That is very possible. I just don't know uh, uh, if we could ask anything of her at the US Open because of the pressure. I hope that she will deliver, of course, but that's a lot to ask of an 18-year-old. All right, before we go, guys, um, there's another pair of Williams sisters on the horizon. That is right. Serena had baby number two, Adira River, just the other night. So now we've got the Williams sisters giving birth to the Williams sisters. And so my question to you guys, are Olympia and Adira River Williams destined for some sort of coming out party 15 years from now? playing doubles together in a professional tennis tournament. Johnny, I'll start with you. Well, it is exciting to see uh, Serena have another baby. It'd be fun for Olympia to have a, have a sibling. And um, I, I expect big things out of those kids. They've got the athletic gene, that's for sure. And um, yeah, but we're waiting for Venus to come through and, and give those, those two, those two kids some cousins. It, it should be fun to see how those young ones, uh, what what sports they're going to get into. That'll be fun. Well, if Venus has any influence over her niece's match, it's going to be by way of gobbing them up with red lipstick because that's what she's been doing lately, which I've kind of thought has been a little bit of a strange look. But, <laughs> but you know what? It's, such, it's, it's actually such a deep uh, uh, question because what did – what. Have they inspired American tennis? Of course they have Serena and Venus. We have Coco Goff. We got Sloan Stevens. We got Madison Keys. Is are, are the Williams sisters the reason for why we have more African American, uh, and minority, uh, races playing our sport? Uh, now we're going to get the answer. Are, if they going to push Serena in this case, is she going to try and get her kids into tennis because of what tennis did for Serena? Or is she going to take them as far away from where she has has uh, basically made her life out of, because I think the road's been pretty rough for Serena at times, even though she's the greatest of all time. So is that pathway clear enough where Serena wants to risk her daughter's sort of teenage years by running running around on tennis courts? That, to me, is a very interesting question. I think she can have conversations on both ends of that by speaking to Petter Korda about how he came to make his decisions. And then he can go to the other side of the spectrum and speak to Andre and Steffi and figure out what they did so that now that they've got two incredibly successful children in their own right with, um, you know, their son who pitches for USC and their daughter jazz, who uh, uh, Jaden Gill, who pitches for USC and jazz, who's like a, a hip hop dancer and very talented in her own right. And then you've got Sebastian Corda, who we really didn't get to him tonight when talking about the Americans, because we're not really sure what's going on. It's been a tough summer for him and he's been kind of bitten by the injury bug here and there. We sure hope we can get to see him healthy and back into the form that he was in when he had a nice run in the Australian Open. But uh, but to see two new Williams sisters on the horizon, the one thing I would be willing to put my money on is this. Whatever she does, she's going to probably do it a little differently than the way Richard Williams did it. That would be the only thing that I would bank on. And that's no slight on him, but that's just this isn't a straight out of Compton story anymore. Right. This is a straight out of Beverly Hills situation at this point. Um, But I think if I would think that if Serena sees that they have the love for the sport and they want it, she certainly has the means with which to encourage it. So only time will tell. In the meantime, we are back 
and hopefully better than ever. We've got a new website. Hopefully you guys are liking the redesign there. We're old guys that are trying to keep up with the times. Um, Matt, you're leaving for the U.S. Open. You'll be on the grounds Friday. You'll be working for Eurosport. Johnny, are you going to New York or not? I will be in New York uh, first couple days and uh, looking forward to it. I Obviously, those outer courts get the great matches and there's, you can see everyone. So I'm, I'm, I'm pumped to see, uh, to get there and, and, and I'll follow around some of the Americans obviously, and maybe we'll find a new, new one that we don't even know about today. Matt's final word. It's your birthday this week. You're 59. You came to Colorado. You did the Bruce Springsteen thing and left it all on the court. I got to give you the final word on what's the big storyline that you're intrigued by with this year's U S open. Well, to be honest, I'm not sure if it has to do with with my age, having turned 59 years old, <laughs> but uh, I'm becoming soft for sure. I'm starting to look at stories. When I started in this job as a commentator analyst, they were they people were saying stories. Well, it's a great story. I'm like, yeah, but she's got a shit backhand, or he can't <laughs> hit a forehand. Like, what's up with the story? Let's talk about tennis. I, I'm getting more um, intrigued by everything that's happening. I think because of what the the stage that the world is in with Ukraine uh, and uh, and the invasion of their country, uh, what's happened in China uh, with tennis. Um, I think that uh, it, it's uh, it's going to be a U.S. Open that is going to be so wild. And I think people are starting to appreciate uh, the world coming together in a big sporting event and everybody's allowed in. Novak is playing. Um, the, the unfortunate people that are born in Russia and Belarus are allowed to play. It's an open. It's a clear open. And I think uh, they're going to send a massive, massive message to the rest of the world of what sports stands for and how you make friends. Because I think New York is the melting pot. And I think the U.S. Open the last few years has easily been the wildest Grand Slam that, we, that we've ever seen. People in New York that go to the U.S. Open, they are losing their mind because they are so excited to be there. So that goes along with me and Johnny, too, I think. I will just simply say in closing, I don't think you're going soft at all. I think that you're just showing some tremendous wisdom. You're thinking and seeing things globally. There's nothing wrong with that. And I happen to agree that that does kind of change my perspective on being excited about the U.S. Open based on those comments. So we'll close it there. We are kickserveradio.com. The legend himself, Matt Vlander, The Longhorn legend, Johnny Levine. I'm Andy Zoden. We'll see you guys after the Open. And I'm sure we're going to have lots to talk about. Hopefully we'll see you on the courts and you'll catch us here.